Thank you, Pastor Mark. I don't know that I'd ever describe one of my sermons as brief, but I appreciate the compliment. (laughs) Well, good morning, guys. It's good to be back with you. This is week two of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in our sermon series, Kingdom Come. And I'm going to go ahead and have the ushers come forward at this time with the Bibles. If you're here and you don't have a Bible with you, if you just put your hand in the air, they will give you a copy of the Word of God to use this morning. And if you don't have a copy at home, please keep that. That's a gift from us to you. Um, We want everyone to be able to open up God's Word and study it for themselves. Once you have uh, your Bible, go ahead and turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. That's page 682 of the Bible that they just handed out to you. Matthew, chapter 1. And uh, what we're doing this year, I mentioned this last week, is we're spending the year seated at the feet of Jesus. We're trying to understand what does it mean to follow Him, to be His disciple. And so last week... Uh, We began that study by reading verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1, which was the genealogy of Christ. And some of you may have thought, oh man, the genealogy. I hope by the time you left, you thought, man, that's really cool. Like Matthew has so much going on in there. He's he's really trying to help the people understand just who Jesus is and, and why he has come. We learned last week that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah that the Jewish nation has been waiting for, that promised king who would rule forever on the throne of David. He's the one through whom God would bless all the nations of the earth. Those are some pretty amazing statements about Jesus of Nazareth. And if you missed that sermon, um, I would encourage you to go on our website and watch it because those truths are foundational for understanding the rest of Matthew's gospel. You really need to grasp them. And as I was getting ready for today, I really thought about just calling this, Who is Jesus? Part 2. Because really, Matthew is still unpacking that question for his audience. He's still trying to help them understand who Jesus is before he gets into Jesus' life and ministry. But I thought if we just focus on that question, we might miss some of the other things that he's trying to highlight as well. And so um, he is clearly trying to highlight the miraculous conception in this next section that we're going to study. So uh, that's what we're going to focus on today is the miraculous conception Look with me at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the first half of this verse. Here's what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew is shifting his attention away from the genealogy, and now he's moving it towards the birth of Christ. And what's interesting is, you know, this English word here, birth, is actually the word genesis. Does that sound familiar at all? That's a familiar term, right? That's the name of the first book of the Bible. Um, If you actually look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the word translated genealogy is also the same word, Genesis. Matthew is doing this intentionally. He's trying to help his audience understand this is the story about the beginnings, the origin of Jesus Christ. He He wants them to understand who Jesus is and where he's come from. Now, who doesn't love a good origin story, right? We all have superheroes or characters from movies that we enjoy hearing about their origin. Maybe you're a Superman fan. Do you know Superman comes from the planet Krypton? His real name is Kal-El, and uh, his parents rescued him as a baby, put him on a spaceship, and sent him off because they knew that the planet was about to be destroyed. That spaceship crash lands in rural United States of America. Could even be Grimes, Iowa. I don't really know. But uh, the Kent family adopts him and raises him as Clark Kent, right? Also known as Superman. Maybe your favorite, my favorite, was Spider-Man. Young, nerdy teenage boy. I couldn't relate to that at all. (laughs) Um, Peter Parker, that was his name. And he's on a school trip when he gets bit by a radioactive spider and gets his powers. 
Or maybe you like Star Wars. I like Star Wars. Han Solo, right? He's an orphan from the planet Corellia. He grows up on the streets, obviously gets into a lot of trouble that way. Eventually, the trouble catches up with him, and so he has to enlist in the Imperial Navy to learn how to fly. He's subsequently kicked out of that for insubordination, and then he becomes the uh, lovable scoundrel that we meet him in the original Star Wars trilogy. Right? Each one of those people have an origin story. You have an origin story. I have an origin story. Ours may not be as quite as exciting as some of those fictional ones, but we all come from somewhere, and we, are, we have a story. And so too does Jesus Christ. Right? He's the Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what I think is really interesting about Jesus' origin story, well, let me just show you, actually. Let's just go to the Gospel of John. Go ahead and turn over into the Gospel of John a few, few books later. That's page 758 to John chapter 1. Let me show you about Jesus' origin story. Here's what John writes in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There you go. John declares that this Word was in the beginning, that He was with God and that He was God. Everything that was made was made through Him. You have to ask, well, who's the Word, right? Take your finger and scroll a little bit further down to verse 14. And John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's the Word? The Word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent from the Father, the one through whom all things were made, full of grace and truth. What's my point in this? My point is that Jesus' origin story extends long before when he entered into this world as a little human baby. Where Jesus is God. He's eternally existent. He's outside of time. That's a pretty amazing origin story. He is the one who's made all things, this world and everything in it. Right now, Right, mine should be blown, because <laughs> uh, this is quite the, the origin story. What you're reading here in Matthew 1 and also in John 1 is that the Word, this Jesus, this creator of all things, he chose to enter into his creation. The Son of God, who's outside of time and space, willingly chose to enter into it, and he put on humanity. He humbled himself through the miraculous conception this is a fitting concept, I think, to be studying on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I promise you, I did not align this passage uh, with Sanctity of Life Sunday. It just happened to be that way. Look again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read the whole verse. Matthew 1, 18 says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so what we can see from this single verse is that Matthew is starting to trace Jesus' origin story from the beginning of his time here on earth, right? And so he's recording some of those details. And so what we have so far is that he has a mother named Mary who's betrothed to Joseph. 
But before they came together in sexual union to, to complete the marriage process, she's found to be with child. And listen to how it finishes. It says, from the Holy Spirit. Right? This is not a normal pregnancy. Mary is a virgin. Uh, she's miraculously been conceived by the moving of God the Holy Spirit. This is a pregnancy that is unlike anything that's ever been seen before and will never be seen again. That's exactly what Matthew's trying to point out. This is unique. Jesus' origin story is unique. It's a miracle. And his original audience wouldn't have missed that, and frankly, we can't miss that either. This is miraculous. Well, let's keep reading now. Let's read all the way to the end of uh, verse 25 here. So I'm going to pick up, I'm going to start in verse 18. We're going to read all the way to verse 25. So again, Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So it's a pretty abrupt account. It's very short, but in this recounting, Matthew is trying to help us understand where Jesus began his time here on earth. And this account, frankly, demands a response from the readers, right? What he's claiming and what he's sharing is nothing short of miraculous, and you have to do something with that. It should provoke a response in you. And that's why in the time that we have remaining, I want to show you three reasons to marvel at Jesus' origin story, right? We should be astonished. We should be amazed at what we're hearing. This is miraculous. It is good news. And so let's talk about it. The first reason that you have to marvel is God sent his son. God sent his son. You've heard this from both the Gospel of Matthew now and also today the Gospel of John. Jesus is so much more than just a normal man a human baby boy. He is none other than the Son of God. Or as Matthew pointed out here in verse 23, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew's going to continue to unpack that concept throughout the gospel. But you have to remember, at the time he was writing, his original audience, they understood this, that, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That the things that he had done during his time on earth, the miracles he performed, were things that only God could do. He demonstrated authority over illness, over uh, demons, and over all of creation. He had shown that he was God. They knew that that's what he claimed. And so Jesus is you know, wanting to remind his readers, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he came to the world to do. And his conception is nothing short of miraculous given by God, the Holy Spirit, to Mary. That's the story we hear often at Christmas time. 
are we still amazed by it? Or is it just kind of like, oh yeah, that's the Christmas story. I've heard that before. This should be amazing. This should provoke astonishment in us. What we're reading about has never happened before and, and has never happened since then. This is a miracle. It demonstrates Jesus' unique origin. He's from God, and as we continue to learn and see, he is God. He is God in human form. And here's what these early Christians are learning. They're learning that their God, the God whom they worship, is a triune God. Three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we actually see Matthew explain that or show that just a couple of chapters later in Matthew chapter 3. So turn with me to Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. This is the account of Jesus' baptism. And look for the three persons of the Godhead here. Here's what it says. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? All three persons of the Godhead are present here. Right? Each, each person carrying out their part to rescue God's people from their sin. They each have a role in this process. And how amazing is it that God the Son would willingly humble himself to come down and take on human form to endure the limitations of, of being in this body? Right? That's a big concept that we have to wrap our minds around, and yet it is also foundational to our faith. God came down, the creator entering into his creation. Right? Jesus is so much more than just a good man or a wise teacher. He's the creator. He is God. He is worthy of your worship, which is why it's so important to consider how we respond to Jesus. Right, last week, I introduced the fact that we're going to see four different groups of people in the Gospel of Matthew, and each group has a different response to Jesus. And we really have to evaluate which group are we in, which response is our response. Let me remind you of what they are. The first group is the religious leaders, right? So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the people who were opposed to Jesus. They, that was their response. They, had, they wanted nothing to do with what he stood for because it threatened them. The second group were the crowds. So as Jesus is doing his public ministry, a large group starts to follow him and starts to watch what he's doing. And they're excited about what the miracles and things that he's doing, but they're also noncommittal. They're not willing to lay down their lives and follow him and obey his teachings. The third group are the disciples. These are the people who are growing in their faith, um, but they're still struggling, right? They, they still sin and they still have doubts and they're still afraid. But they are seeking to lay down their lives and follow Christ. They're seeking to respond positively to him. And then the last group are the demons. Those who know that Jesus is the Son of God, we'll even see them say that in the course of this gospel, but they hate him for it. They hate who he is. They, they, he's their enemy. And so if, if our response is similar to the religious leaders, right, where we're opposed to Jesus, or if our response is, like the crowds where we're excited about who he is, but really not willing to commit to following him. Or even worse, if our response is like the demons where, well, I know who Jesus is, but I don't want anything to do with him. I hate him. That, that's not an appropriate response at all to the creator of the world, to what we're hearing who Jesus is. 
And may our response be like the disciples, right, who say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to respond to you in faith. That's the only appropriate response, to bow the knee in humble submission and worship. Say, God, I want to I live for you. I want to walk with you daily. Would you help me to grow even in spite of my failures? That's the position and the response of the disciples. So, for you personally now, thinking about this, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your response to Jesus? Do you agree with Matthew? Do you agree with the claims of this gospel account, with the claims of Jesus himself, that he is God? And if the answer is no, I'm, I'm not there yet, well, then how do you reconcile what we're about to study and what Jesus has done in his life and ministry? I know we haven't got into that a lot yet. I want to encourage you, if you're, if you're wrestling with, you know, I don't really know if I agree with this, um, to keep coming back. As we, as we see Jesus enter into his public life and ministry, as you hear what he taught, as you hear what he claimed, to consider, well, how does that intersect with my life? What do I do with that? Because you can't ignore it. You can't avoid it. You have to do something with it. And if you're here and you say, well, yeah, I do agree. I, I agree that he is God and I want to follow him. Great. Does your life reflect that? Does it match up with what you say that you believe? That's the question. Are you bowing the knee in worship and submission to Christ on a daily basis? Is there evidence that you count it all joy to say no to sin and temptation and to say yes to pleasing Christ? Right? May our words and our behaviors line up with our faith in Christ. When you fall, are you looking to him for grace and for forgiveness to help you continue to pursue him and to follow him again? Right, as the creator of all things, he is able to sustain you. He is ready to forgive you. All you have to do is ask. And he wants you to experience the joy and the satisfaction that comes from living life in his will and his ways. Now, what I also find uh, very fascinating about Matthew's gospel account here is that he also emphasizes how God works in and through people at particular times in particular places. And so that's going to be our second reason to marvel God appointed a particular people and time. He appointed a particular people and time. I mean, think about this. This is the God who is outside of space and time, choosing to work within space and time to accomplish his redemptive plan. That, again, should just blow our minds. That should be amazing to us. That's a big truth. And in this case, he chooses to use Mary and Joseph, two young Jewish people, to work out his redemptive plan. And Matthew here in his gospel is focusing on Joseph. He shares, hey, Joseph's uh, quite surprised to find out that Mary is pregnant. Right? They hadn't been intimate yet. How in the world could she be with child? As a husband who has not yet slept with his wife, his only reasonable assumption could be she's been adulterous. And as I was reading and preparing for today, um, I learned some things about the betrothal process back then. It's not like Western culture's dating or courting relationships. They're, you know, in the Western culture, we get to know one another. We try to evaluate, is this the person I want to spend the rest of my life with before we make that decision? Uh, back then in the betrothal process, they would not have really known each other that well. Uh, so Joseph doesn't have a whole lot to go on when he hears this news that Mary is pregnant. And so he's in this predicament, isn't he? How's he going to respond? Well, go back to verse 19. 
Matthew tells us a little bit about Joseph's response. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is a just man. That means that he was a man who lived by the law. He sought to be righteous. That's what Jews were called to do. Joseph was a man who sought to live by the law and be righteous. And within the constraints of the law, Joseph would have been encouraged to divorce this adulterous woman. That's what they would have expected him to do. If he didn't do that, he's now implying that he was complicit in her pregnancy. It would have brought shame on him and it would have brought shame on both of them. And so from his perspective, right, he thinks that she's been unfaithful. He doesn't know any better. But what you also see in Joseph's response is his humility and his compassion. Because what he could have done according to the law is drag Mary into the public courts and to shame her in front of everyone. Look at this adulterous woman, but that's not what he does. No, instead, he seeks to divorce her quietly. That was another alternative that could be pursued in the law where you needed two witnesses to show that you had handed a, a writ of divorce. And that's what Joseph sought to do. He was seeking to not humiliate Mary, but to instead show her compassion. And it's, when Jesus, it's as he's considering these, this path of what he's about to do, where then we're interrupted by the angel, right? So look at verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right? That word behold was meant to grab the audience's attention. It's saying, look here, look at what's happening. God is breaking into Joseph's planning to say, hey, Joseph, let me tell you about my plan. He brings Joseph up to speed on what his plan is. He says, you are the son of David. That's reminding us of his lineage. But he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Another way of, of saying that would be, don't shrink back from doing this, right? God is speaking through his messenger to Joseph, and he's saying, I want you to marry this woman. This child is not an adulterous child. It's a miraculous child. I mean, what a message. I mean, Joseph has had a, quite the night, hasn't he? But isn't it amazing how our sovereign God chooses to work? He uses particular people, Mary and Joseph, at a particular time in the world's history to accomplish his plan. Regular, ordinary people brought into the divine plan of God to accomplish his redemptive purposes. That's how God works. That's how he worked back then. And guess what? That's how he works still to this day. God consistently uses regular, ordinary people to accomplish his redemptive plan. Now, I could tell you about my middle school friend, Lee, and his family, who lovingly invited me into their home and, and bought me my first study Bible and took me to church and, and to a Christian drama where I eventually heard the gospel preached and proclaimed and had the opportunity to trust in Christ. Right, regular, ordinary people just being faithful to be used by God where he had put them. I could tell you about two college guys named Jared Hammond and Steve Rust who intentionally left their third uh, bed open in their apartment so that whoever got put there they could minister and evangelize to. You want to guess who the guy was that got put there? Me. Right? Regular, ordinary guys seeking to be faithful where God had put them and placed them. I could tell you about Brent and Janet Oquin, a young couple with young kids 
who had a lot going on. Brent was the pastor of a growing college ministry. Uh, They were involved in a lot of things in the local church, and yet they still took time out of their busy lives to invest in others, including young men and young women like my wife and I, to disciple us and to help us grow in godliness. Regular, ordinary people who are faithful to be a part of God's redemptive plan. That's how he works. That's just three examples from my life. I bet if we had an open mic and invited you to come up and share about the people God's used in your life, we could spend all day here and you could share about how God used so-and-so to minister to you and to bless you. And may that challenge us and may that encourage us. Do you stop and marvel at those things? That the God outside of space and time works within space and time through particular people at particular times to accomplish his plan. It's amazing. Do you praise God for those people that he's put in your life? Do you pray for them? That's honestly one of my favorite ways to be able to bless those people. I may not have a lot of time to see them face to face. I may not have a lot of time to call them on the phone. But what I can do is once a quarter I reach out and say, brother, sister, how can I pray for you? They've been a blessing in my life. God has used them in my life. The least I can do is to be faithful to pray for them. And then it's on me. Once they tell me how to pray, then I have to be faithful to to follow through and to pray for them. What about you? How can you be used to be faithful and to minister to others, to encourage those whom God has put in your path? What would it take for you to this week reach out to that person and say, hey, thank you for allowing God to use you in my life? I just want to encourage you. I don't know if you know the impact that you've made on me, but here it is, and how can I pray for you? If you've got the name of someone in your heart and your mind, I would encourage you to write it down in your bulletin and then purpose to follow up with them this week. And then on the other side of that is how can you be that type of person for someone else where you are in a position to be used of God in their life? I think the place we have to start is are we sitting at the feet of Jesus? Are we learning from his word? Are we allowing ourselves to be transformed by it? to be in a position where we could sit down with someone and and share truth in a loving and kind way. Or you have to know God's will and his ways if you're gonna lead someone else in them. And maybe you're here and you'd say, well, I know I I always have good intentions, but I never quite get around to it. It seems like it's such a a high bar to reach. How do I do that? Well, I wanna encourage you. I've got some practical things that you can do. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago, but uh, this here and on the screen behind me is the five-day Bible reading plan. If you struggle to get into the Word consistently, allow this tool to bless you. I used this last year, and it was a huge blessing to me. It shows you what you can read daily. gives you something to focus on in the Scriptures. And I love the way that they lay it out. Honestly, it helps the Old and New Testaments fit together so well. It's a tool to help you sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from Him. Maybe you'd say, well, I, I'm, I'm decent at reading the Word and, and sitting at the feet of Jesus that way, but I really struggle to pray. Well, let me share with you something that's been helpful for me. This is, there's a lot of different ways out there that you can pray. Um, this is just one system that I found helpful. It's the acronym ACTS. It stands for adoration. That's what the A is, meaning I'm responding to who God is. I'm praising him for his character. Uh, he's worthy of it. C is confession. It's acknowledging that I don't own up or that I don't measure up. It's owning that. It's saying, God, I need you. Here are the ways in which I've fallen short. Would you please forgive me? All right, the T is thanksgiving. So I'm now praising the Lord for the ways he's been working. 
You know, his character has been shown. Uh, he's worked in the past. He's working in the present. I know that he will be working in the future. I'm giving God thanks for all of those things. And then the last one is supplication. And that's the one we tend to get our focus on. If, that's, if, we, if we do one thing in prayer, we normally do supplication, right? Those are when we say, God, here's how I need you to work. Here's how I need you to move. If, if you don't move, then this isn't going to change. This is not going to happen. But that can't be the only thing we do in our prayer life. God is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our thanksgiving. And I need to own up to my shortcomings. So that's a, that's a helpful tool. That's what it is. It's a tool. Please don't let that be law for you. But if it would bless you, maybe consider using that. The last tool I want to point you to um, is this little handout here. We've got some in the foyer. It's the Harvest Bible Chapel Six Pillars Scripture Memory Challenge. We talked about that as well a couple weeks ago about taking time this year to store up God's word in our heart. And the first six verses were going along with the six pillars. So for the month of January, I challenge you to memorize bold preaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, right? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. How are you doing on that? Are you, are you working on that? Are you memorizing it? That handout's meant to be something you could put on your fridge to remind you, give you a little accountability for it. Um, but then, you know, one verse each month. That's what we're asking you to seek to do. Again, not just to have law, but to store up God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him, that we might live out the things that he calls us to. Once you're doing those things, once you've been sitting at the feet of Jesus, then you need to consider, who's God given me to disciple? All right, who has he put in your life? If you're a parent, he's given you some people in your home, right? You have kids that you get to pour into, you get to invest in. Start there. If you're in a small group, look at the people around you in your group. Evaluate if there might be someone there whom you can pour into or invest in. Perhaps you serve in harvest kids or harvest students, right? There are young people there who need discipled. Look for one. Seek to pour into them, invest in them. And if none of those fit your scenario, then look and evaluate what spheres of influence has God placed you in in your life. Maybe it's work, maybe it's the home, maybe it's other places. Who can you invest in? Who can you pour into? There's someone there for you. Two weeks ago, I challenged you to write down the name of one person that you were going to seek to share the gospel with this year. And then the name of one other person whom you were going to disciple this year. Have you been thinking about that at all since then? And it's time really to move beyond thought, right? To action. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to say, all right, here's the names. I've written them down. I would encourage you to write them down again. And then commit to at least starting the conversation before the month is over. All right, so that by the time January ends, you've at least initiated a conversation with them to you know, catch back up on life, to get coffee, whatever it is. Right, just to begin the ball rolling. may not mean that you're sharing the gospel with them at that moment in time, but you know that I want to be intentional in this relationship, to get to know them better, to love them better, and then down the road to either disciple or evangelize them. That's how you allow yourself to be used by God in someone else's life. So please do that. I want to encourage you towards that as your pastor. And this, all, all of this, what I'm calling you to and what I'm teaching you on this morning stems back to the conviction that God has a plan and a purpose for every single life, right? It's his pattern to work through regular, ordinary people to accomplish his plans. You are here to represent and reflect him, as am I, right? Every life has a purpose. 
It has value to God, which is what makes it so incredibly sad and shameful that so many lives are ended early through abortion. Right? We can't be on Sanctity of Life Sunday and not talk about this. Right? These babies are made in God's image. He has a plan for them. We've already heard Psalm 139 once today, but I want to remind you of it again. This is King David reflecting on God's plans for his life, but also the lives for each of us. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Life begins at conception in the womb. And God has a plan for that life, long before they were born, long before they were conceived. And it's an atrocity to play God, to end that life before it's time. And that's why our third reason to marvel at Jesus' origin story is so key. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph in verse 21? Listen to what he says about Jesus. He tells Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name means the Lord saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Matthew's alluding to, and the angel's clarifying that this salvation It's from your sins, which is a much different salvation than what the Jews were expecting, right? We talked about this, that they were expecting a political ruler, a mighty king who would come, who would overthrow the Romans, who would put them back on top top of the world, you know, as God's chosen people. That's what they were hoping for. But what they failed to understand is that God had a people that were far greater than just the Jews. Yes, the Jews are a part of God's chosen people, but so are the Gentiles, the non-Jews, God is making a people for himself of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. So his plan was never to send a Messiah to put one ethnic group back on top of the world. His plan was to send his son to save his people from their sins. That was his plan. That is what he's accomplished. And that's incredibly good news for Gentiles like you and me. Because the truth is, we're all sinners. That's the testimony of Scripture. None of us measure up. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, right? Each one of us, whether it's abortion or sexual immorality, whether it's adultery or lust, whether it's murder or yelling in sinful anger, whether it's cheating on your taxes or lying to your friend, the fact is we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all need a Savior. We all need a Redeemer. There's not a single one of us who, by our own rebellion and our own selfishness, has not rightly earned God's just judgment and his condemnation, which is why it's such good news that Jesus has come to save his people from their sin. That is good news. He is providing us with hope. And it's not hope that we bring to the, to the table. This is not about what we can do or have done. 
Listen to how this, this passage in Romans continues. In verse 24, it goes on, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What you're hearing is that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who came as a baby right here in Matthew 1, he didn't just stay as a baby. He grew up as the son who went to the cross, who took our shame and our sin on himself. He came to save his people from their sins. And that was God's plan all along. He was making a way to justify, to declare righteous any and all who would have faith in Christ. It's not because of your works. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's God's grace as a gift. That's what this passage tells us. And it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not just about the miraculous conception. That is a miracle, and it is amazing, but it's also about the cross. It's also about what Jesus accomplished in paying the penalty for our sins. The word that's used here, it's a big word, propitiation. It means that Jesus not only took on the whole wrath of God meant for you and for me, but he satisfied that wrath. That for those who have faith in Christ, there is no wrath left, only forgiveness and redemption. By Jesus, you can be redeemed. It's an amazing promise this morning. And you may be familiar with uh, this next truth I'm going to share with you, but I think it's so good we got to rejoice in it again. It's Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a promise. If you are united with Christ, then you have no condemnation. If you confess that you are a sinner and that Christ died for your sins, God declares you righteous and just. He declares you son or daughter. He invites you into his heaven. That's a good trade. And if you're here and you've never confessed your sin, if you've never admitted your need for Jesus to save you, then my encouragement to you is to let that be today's decision, right? To consider what we've been talking about and to wait no longer to have this hope that God the Son has made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. If you would but confess that you need him to save you, you could be his people. You don't have to be a rebel deserving of God's wrath. And so I just ask you, if that's, if that's where you're at today, if you're wrestling through what you believe or maybe even hostile to what I'm saying, just to consider what is it that's keeping you from making the most important decision that you will ever make? Or why not get that handled today? And if you've got things that you're wrestling with, I'd love to chat with you about that. Let's, let's set up a time. Let's get some coffee or a meal and, and talk through whatever those things are that you're wrestling with. If you're here and you have been saved from your sins, then the opportunity for you is to rejoice, right? To marvel, to be astonished at what Christ has done and what God has done by sending his son to save you from your sins. Don't let that just be something that you breeze by quickly as you read the gospel of Matthew. The truths we're talking about are so foundational, they're so fundamental, they're life-changing. 
But don't just stop at marveling for a moment. Right? This marveling should transition into a lifetime of obedience, of joy-filled, delighted obedience and following in Christ's footsteps. That's what we're called to do. That's the only appropriate response to who he is and what he's done. I think the Apostle Paul captures that well in his letter to the church at Colossae. In the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, he outlines how radical this this life change should be. I'm going to start in Colossians 3 verse 1. Consider this. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What Paul is laying out for the Colossians is that if you're in Christ, if you have been forgiven of your sins, then that changes everything. Your whole life, instead of being oriented around yourself, ought to be oriented around him and and living for him and pursuing what pleases him. That means what you value and what you seek after on a daily basis begins to change. And in fact, the rest of chapter 3, which we're not going to read, but the rest of chapter 3 all the way into chapter 4, verse 5, give some very practical ways that that might look in your life. And so here's what I want to do. I want to actually give you some homework. Are you okay if I give you some homework? Guess what? I don't care. I'm going to give you homework anyways. So here's your homework. On your bulletin, write down, read Colossians 3 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. So later today, later this week, when you have time in your devotionals, spend some time studying all of Colossians 3 all the way into chapter 4, verse 5. And what I'm asking you to do is to look for two ways that you need to live out your salvation in Christ. There's a lot of practical ways in those verses. What are two that you can take and and live out as you respond to Jesus in worship? And if I were you, you know, I would think back to last week when we had we, I asked you to identify the three things, the top three things that are hindering you and your walk with the Lord. I would tie these two back into one of those, right? So if you know that you struggle with sinful anger, well, guess what? Then one of your goals can be, I'm going to seek to handle my anger in a way that's righteous. You see how that works? Here's a couple of examples of, of things that Colossians say that you could maybe make your goal. How about this? I need to continue steadfastly in prayer. If that's something you wrestle with, that might be a good goal for you to set out. What does that look like? Or how about this? I need to walk in wisdom towards those who don't know Christ. Meaning you're thinking about who you're going to evangelize, who you're going to be a godly example to. Or maybe it's I need to grow in patience. Could be with your spouse, could be with your kids, could be with your coworkers, could be in certain situations that arise in your life. Or I need to fulfill my God-given role in the home. Men, we're called to be leaders, servant leaders. Ladies, called to be helpers. Are we fulfilling that? Or I need to put off sinful anger or idolatry. So what is it that you are putting on a throne and worshiping instead of God? Whatever that is, maybe the goal is to take that off and replace it with Christ. Those are some practical ways that you can live out the salvation that God has provided to you. It's a response of worship. It's, it's that astonishment at what Christ has done. It's not a work to earn righteousness. It's a response to who God is and what he's done. And to him be the glory through it. Now, one of the ways that we can walk out our salvation is to value the things that God values. And I think it's clear from what we've talked about today and what we heard about earlier that on Sanctity of Life Sunday, 
We need to emphasize that God values life, every life. They are made in his image, right, every human being. And so as we come together here at the end, what I'd like to have us do is watch a short video about the importance of life, and then I'm going to come back up and just give us a quick kind of challenge as we talk about Agape Pregnancy Center, one of our ministry partners. So would you give your attention to the screen? Amen. We want to be a people that choose life. Um, originally, Lori Zepp uh, was going to come up here and share, but she's homesick today. Lori serves on the board of Agape Pregnancy Center, which is one of the ministries that we partner with as a church. They're a ministry that's on the front lines of this war to value life. We live in a culture and a day and age where, where life is not valued like God says we ought to. Um, and so I'm very thankful for ministries like Agape that provide all kinds of resources for moms and dads who are facing unplanned pregnancies and, and just maybe don't have that support network around them that the church could and should be. And so um, if you did not know, today is an opportunity to support Agape. Uh, we have a little donation drive out in the foyer there uh, with diapers and wipes, and um, they've asked for even clothing for newborn up to two years old, um, pack and plays that are brand new. So if you want to participate in that, if you haven't had the opportunity yet, um, we'll keep those donations open through Wednesday evening. Um, so if you want to bring those into the church, you're welcome to. Also, we're going to, here in a few minutes, do a special offering. Uh, every, every dollar that's you know, raised through this offering will be given straight to Agape, uh, just to continue to encourage and support them in their mission. And there's just uh, so much that they do that's worth supporting. Whether it's they've got a mom coming in who is scared out of her mind and doesn't know what to do because she just found out she was pregnant and she wasn't planning on it, or whether it's after baby is born, helping them have classes that are practical and, and teaching them how to bathe the baby and how to care for the baby and what to do when the baby has a temperature. They have all kinds of wraparound services, and so they're, they're a great ministry partner. I would highly encourage you to consider sacrificing to help support them. I also want you to know about this. Um, they have an open house coming up. It's later this spring on April 18th. So it's a Saturday, Saturday, April 18th from noon to 4 p.m. Uh, they're going to have an open house. They actually have been given graciously um, some more facility space down at their location, and so they've been working on that, renovating that, and they want to show it off to everyone and also just help get the word out about what they stand for and what they're doing. So I would encourage you, if you have the availability, to put that in your calendar and plan to go meet them, get to know them, um, and, and maybe even just pray with them. The cool thing about Agape is they're 100% donor-funded, so they are free to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone that walks through their doors. There's nothing hindering them from sharing the reason for what they do. So I'm very thankful for them, and I want to encourage us to be all about supporting people that value life, right? because God values life. So I'm going to have the ushers come forward right now, and I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and they'll receive the offering in our last worship song. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of studying your word this morning of being able to yet again learn about you and to just think through that question, who are you? And to be able to see and study about the miraculous conception that you are unlike any other. Even your entrance into this world was unique. Your mission was unique. You came to save your people from their sins. And Lord, as one of your people, I thank you for that. I thank you for the hope that I have because I'm no longer condemned by my rebellion. But instead, I've received the righteousness of Christ. And I hope and pray that for many here today, that that would be their cry as well, that they would rejoice in what you have done for them, that they are set free from sin and death. And Lord, I pray that we would then live out that identity, that we wouldn't walk out of here and go right back into the brokenness of sin and temptation, but that we would go to war daily to live out the righteousness that you have earned us. 
Lord, for those who are here who may be wrestling, I pray that you would help them. Uh, Lord God, that they would speak up, that they would ask for help if they're uh, wrestling with what they believe, that they would ask someone near them or even come up afterwards and and say, you know, I want to know more about this. Why do you believe this? If there's someone who's here who's struggling with a particular area of sin in their life, I pray that they would be willing to bring that into the light in their small group this week to get the help that you provide through your body. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We pray all of this in your precious name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we praise our great God together?